Our sermon text this morning is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage that you, ha- that you have us in. We pray that you will be with Mr. Horn. We pray that you will speak through him. We pray that you will help us to uh, be good, attentive listeners and good hearers of your word and good doers of your word. We thank you that you sent your Son as a perfect sacrifice to, to sanctify us and to take away our sins. We pray that you will help us to be faithful to you. Amen. So as the writer of Hebrews has been making the argument that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins, even for the high priest that entered into the Holy of Holies year by year, he had to make the same sacrifices. And even with those sacrifices, he had to keep a cloud of incense surrounding the mercy seat lest he die. The sacrifices that were to make atonement didn't remove sin, even for a few minutes, even long enough for him to be able to go into the the Holy of Holies and go into the presence of God. But when we think of removing of sin, it's easy for us to restrict it far too much. Many people are offended by the idea of limited atonement. The idea that Christ only died to save some. They say that it disparages the name of Christ. That obviously Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to save everyone. So how can you say only some were saved? They say that implies that his sacrifice wasn't good enough. That somehow it had to be better if he wanted everyone to be saved. As opposed to the right answer is, no, he came and died for those who he chose to die for. It is his great glory to show compassion on whom he will show compassion. To show mercy on whom he will show mercy. But most who would make that argument that 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 shows a problem with the sacrifice, that's rejecting the importance of the sacrifice of Christ, they almost all turn around and say that everything's going to get worse and worse. That his sacrifice could not actually deal with sin in the world. That he has to come back. That his, his sacrifice didn't deal with sin. He has to come back and he has to defeat sin. He has to come back and fight a battle and then rule for a thousand years before sin can actually be dealt with. They're the ones that are making the atonement very small. They're making Jesus Christ's sacrifice, his crucifixion, very small, very meaningless. Just about saving a few people, but it's not, not actually dealing with sin in the world. They claim to be concerned about others not respecting the sacrifices of Jesus Christ. Because it won't save everyone, but they reject the true significance of the sacrifice of Christ. The true significance of the sacrifice of Christ is that it's going to take away all the effects of sin. The sin of Adam. The first Adam entered, through the first Adam, sin entered into the world. And through the second Adam, he brings life into the world. The sin of Adam affected everything. The crucifixion, the taking away of sin of the world affects everything. His sacrifice was not limited to just being about atoning for some people. His sacrifice was sufficient to atone for the whole world. That's why in John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, 
that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ was crucified to take away sin, not just from people, but to take away sin from the world. Since God loved his created order, since he loved the whole cosmos, he sent his son so that sin could be dealt with. So that the the effects of sin that came in through Adam, they could be removed. His atonement is limited if you're talking about people. He only atoned for the elect. The rest he'll cast out into the, the lake of fire. They won't be in the new heavens and the new earth. But his atonement is unlimited in that for the new heavens and the new earth, he will take away all the sin. He will cleanse every bit of it. There will be nothing that offends God. He came away to take away sin. Not just ours, but the effect of sin throughout the world. He's going to make all things perfect. He's going to make all things to have no corruption. His sacrifice is not limited in the scope of its effect. 1 John 3, 5 through 8 says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he who is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For the purpose of the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's what it means that Jesus Christ came to take away sin. Is he came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy all the corruption that was entered into the creation because of Adam's sin. And so he's going to remove it all. The sacrifice of bulls and goats could not even take away the sins of the person making the sacrifice. It couldn't take away the sins of the priest that was doing the work of, of burning that, all, that sacrifice on the altar. It couldn't do anything with his sin. Their sin still remained at the end of it. But Christ's sacrifice is completely different. Christ's sacrifice takes away the sins of the whole world. The effects of his sacrifice were beyond anything that the Levitical priests even thought that sacrifices could do. His sacrifices make all things his sacrifice makes all things new. The so verses eleven through thirteen. And every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. So every priest, before the writer was making the argument about the high priest earlier in this chapter, that on the day of atonement he would offer bulls and goats, offer a bull and goats, to try to turn away the wrath of God so that God could, but it didn't solve the sin problem. It just made it so that God could dwell in their presence, so that God's presence could remain in the tabernacle, that it could remain in the temple. But it didn't actually cleanse them. It didn't actually give them any power over sin. They were still slaves of sin. And now the writer of Hebrews is saying, but it went far beyond the high priest, all the priest, every priest. Every single one was making sacrifices. And none of them actually dealt with the problem of sin. So every priest stands ministering daily. Every day they would go. They would make the morning sacrifices, the evening sacrifice. But not just those sacrifices on a daily basis. Somebody who had a baby, they would come and they would make sacrifices. They'd have to rip off the heads of birds. People would come and make sin offerings and they'd have to take it and take this, this sin offering and they'd have to take out its entrails and burn them on the altar. They made these sin offerings because think they recognized things that were sin that they had not thought were sin. And when they realized that they had to make an offering, they brought trespass offerings for sins that they recognized that they committed. They kept giving offering after offering after offering. The blood would have constantly flowed in the courtyard of the tabernacle. They brought other sacrifices because they touched a dead mouse. 
These sacrifices went on and on, and the people were never changed. The people remained exactly the same. They kept making these sacrifices, but then they would just go and sin again. They would make these sacrifices, and they would just become unclean again. The sacrifices had no effect. There would have been this constant stream of sacrifices if the people were faithful, trying to keep the law, there would be this unending list, unending line of sacrifices to be made by the priests that were to make the person offering them clean. But it only did it in a ceremonial sense because the next day they would come back and they'd have the same problem. And they would be back slaughtering another animal every day. They would be smearing the blood on the horns of the altar, but it had no power. It had the sign of having power, putting the blood on the horns of the altar, but it had no power to actually deal with sin. So they offered repeatedly. They would keep offering and offering and offering millions of animals. The blood would be flowing down out of the tabernacle or the temple, and the people would just keep sinning. And they'd keep having to make more sacrifices. Every prophet of the Old Testament testifies implicitly that the sacrifices of the sacrificial system in the Mosaic law, while it may have symbolically taken away sin, it may have made somebody who was unclean clean, it didn't take away sin. Every prophet had the same message. The same message as you're you're still guilty of sin. You haven't been cleansed. Believe in the Lord. Believe in God. Believe in Jehovah. Trust Him for your salvation because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Every prophet said that, but they still just kept slaughtering the animals. The same sacrifices they would offer repeatedly, over and over, more and more animals, burning more entrails, taking more animals outside the camp to burn them. And the problem with sin was never dealt with. The problem with what actually separated them from God was never dealt with by any of those sacrifices. They had done it for 1,400 years, but it could never take away sins. It was obvious because they kept having to do the sacrifices. They kept having to slaughter the animals. This isn't like hidden. Anybody looking at it can understand. All you have to do is open your eyes and you can understand these sacrifices don't work. They never take away sins. They never truly restore fellowship with the Father, with God. From its very structure, it was proven that they did not take away sins because they weren't commanded to go do them once. They were commanded to daily do them, morning and evening. They were commanded to do it weekly. There were Sabbath offerings. They were commanded to do it monthly. There were new moon offerings. They were commanded to do it yearly with the feasts. In the Day of Atonement, by ordering them to be repeated, it showed they could never take away sins or they wouldn't have to keep being done. The requirement of repeating them forever, it was clear from the giving of the commandment that it could never solve the actual problem. And then contrast that with Christ. But this man, this is not true with Christ. It's not true with the priest of the priesthood of Melchizedek, a more powerful priesthood, a royal priesthood, one that rules the world. Jesus Christ did something vastly different than those millions of sacrifices that, that kept going on and kept being repeated. This man, after he had offered, after he had made the offering, just like the Levitical high priest made the offering to enter into the Holy of Holies, but then he'd have to just flee out of there as fast as he could. That's not what this man did. That's not what Christ did. After he had offered one sacrifice, after he had offered the sacrifice of himself but not a sacrifice of futility as declared in the law or a sacrifice like Moses made before they entered into the the old covenant in Exodus 24 where they offered the burnt offerings and then they immediately went and turned around and made a golden calf. It wasn't an offering like that. 
an offering that couldn't take away sins any more than the offerings of Abraham could take away sins. The offering of Moses, none of those offerings took away sin. But Christ offered one sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. It could take away sins forever. That word translated forever, the writer has already used it twice, and he's going to use it a fourth time in verse 14. But they were, it's actually two words together that gets translated forever. And in verse 1, it was translated continually, Hebrews 10.1, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. So he's drawing a contrast. They kept making the offering. Christ kept made the offering, and then they had to keep doing it. They had to do it forever. That's what they were commanded. But Christ comes, and he makes one offering, and it takes away sins forever. It continues to take away sins. It, it works continually. They were also translated continually in the speaking of Melchizedek, remaining a priest forever and not dying and having his priesthood go to another. In Hebrews 7, 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. That, that word continually, or the same word that gets translated forever here, is the idea like it goes into and continues to have an effect forever without any end. That idea is that his taking away sins did not end with his making the sacrifice. It started with his making the sacrifice and it will continue and it will continue to build Jesus Christ. What's continuing with Christ is, is not the sacrifices. What's continuing with Christ is the taking away of sins. So just as Melchizedek never has an end as a priest, Christ never has an end of taking away sins until the earth is no more, until heavens and earth pass away and there is a new heaven and a new earth. The effect of the one sacrifice, the effect of those other sacrifices, you just needed the sacrifice again. The sacrifice of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ is a sacrifice that says, you never need to sacrifice again because it will continue to take away sin. Which is why Christ sat down. The high priest, when he would go in to the Holy of Holies, he would take incense with him and he'd have to make sure there was a big cloud of incense in there and he'd have to make sure he left before the incense dissipated because he could die if it didn't. If he saw God, he would die. And then contrast that with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ doesn't just go in there and hurry through his work. He goes in there and sits down in the presence of God. Because his sacrifice actually can take away sin. His sacrifice is such that his work is finished on earth. In the sense that he doesn't need to come back and do other things. Yes, he's going to come back to defeat the last enemy with his death. But he sat down at the right hand of the Father because his crucifixion takes away sin out of the whole world. And it continues to take away sin out of the whole world. The high priest sneaks into the Holy of Holies and sneaks out quickly before he dies. Christ goes and sits in the presence of the Father. With his sacrifice, he didn't just enter into the the temple in Jerusalem. There was a shadow of the true. He actually went and sat down in the true temple where the Father dwells. He could sit down and not try to get out. He didn't need to worry about seeing the glory of God because he had reconciled God to man. So even as he went in the flesh, as his resurrected body, he sat down in the presence of God. He could see God and live. Because he took away sins. So he sat down at the right hand of God, the position of authority, the position of being like Joseph to Pharaoh. He's fulfilling his master, God the Father's will. But he's also ruling. He's also the one that's acting. He's also the one that's in control of all things. 
And so then from that time, he's waiting. When he ascended into heaven, he was given a kingdom. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. The high priest got no kingdom. The high priest got no ability to sit in the presence of God. They were priests on the order of Levi. Christ is a priest on the order of Melchizedek, a royal priesthood. He sat down and was king and was given authority and was given power. And so now what he's waiting, he's waiting till all his enemies. He's waiting because his sacrifice was sufficient to take away sins of the world. So therefore all his enemies will be defeated. He's waiting because they were defeated at the cross. His enemies were defeated at the cross. He died to destroy the works of the devil and he did not fail. He succeeded, so his enemies are being destroyed. They will be completely destroyed and he will only come back to destroy the last enemy, which is death. His sacrifice truly takes away sin, which means the world is being healed. The cosmos are being healed from the effects of sin because Jesus Christ's one sacrifice was sufficient to take away sins forever, to take away sins continually. And he's waiting in heaven, ruling with authority. He has a rod of iron, but he's waiting in heaven until the effect of his sacrifice on his enemies is complete until they are defeated, until they're made his footstool. This is a reference to Psalm 110. The book of Hebrews very much has been, is a commentary on Psalm 110. The beginning of the psalm goes in verses 1 through 4, a psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies, Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest on the order of Melchizedek, so he sits at his right hand of God the Father until all his enemies are defeated because his sacrifice was sufficient to take away sins, to take away all the sins of the world, to destroy all the works of the devil. That's why Christ died on the cross. The rod of his strength goes out, because his sacrifice was able to take away sins. The rod of his strength goes out. He'll rule in the midst of his enemies through his people, because his people will be volunteers in the day of his power. Because he's the better priest, the royal priest. He's the king that can send his people out to defeat his enemies and make them his footstool. Verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So for by one offering, notice that the the writer doesn't use the word sacrifice. Early in the chapter, it says sacrifices, offerings you did not desire. That word sacrifice is about the suffering. It's about, it comes from like the, the, the panicked breathing of an animal when it's being killed is what that word sacrifice means. But God doesn't choose to have the writer of Hebrews use sacrifice. He uses offering. The idea of offering is a willingness to give. It's a desire to give. When we think of Christ's sacrifice, it's also important to remember that it was an offering. He made an offering to the Father. That's when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, not my will, but thy will be done. Because that's when he's testifying that he's not just a sacrifice, he's an offering. Because he willingly went. He could order legions of angels. He could have easily destroyed the whole Roman army without without saying more than a word. He even says, I am, when they're standing in front of him and they all fall down out of fear. 
probably 600 soldiers standing in front of him trying to arrest him, and they say, who are you? And he says, ego me, I am. And they all know that's the name of God, and they fall down out of fear. Christ was an offering. It's important to to recognize that and understand that. He was not just a sacrifice. He was an offering. He was an acceptable offering to appease the wrath of God. So he offered himself willingly. He laid down his life so that sin could be dealt with, so that the the works of the devil could be destroyed. And by by the reason of that offering of himself, he is perfected. He has made those who believe in him complete. It doesn't mean that they're perfect, that they're without sin. The idea is... The idea is is that that they've been made complete and are being made complete. They are holy, but yet they're being made holy. But he's finished the work. He's finished the work so that all that are saved by him, all that were sacrificed with him on the cross, they will have all their sin removed. Then it uses the same two words that were used in verse 12 that's translated forever again. And the idea is not so much that he perfected them and then they'll remain forever perfect, but that he, he has made them complete and is continuing to make them complete. Those who he began a good work in, he will complete it. He has made people complete into all the future. The idea is not sinless, sinlessness in this life. The point is that the removing of sins, it starts with the coming with coming to the knowledge of Christ, Christ will continue to carry you forward. He will continue to sanctify you. He will continue forever to make you complete, to be without sin, to have all the effects of Adam and his sin in the garden of Eden, all of that to be removed. So he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Those who Christ is making holy, those who Christ is cleansing and removing their spots and wrinkles, he will continue to do it. He will do it forever. He will remove it, remove all your sin. His sacrifice really takes away sin. It really does. It's not like the sacrifice of bulls and goats. It's not some ceremonial thing so that you say, oh, I'm justified. But then continue to walk in your sins. No, Christ came to take away sin. He came to sanctify a people, to make them a holy people. Verses 15 through 17. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So he starts with saying, but the Holy Spirit also. Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father. His testimony, his ascension is testimony that sins are taken away. The fact that he doesn't need to come back, that's testimony that he will succeed in what none of the priests could ever do. He has succeeded in taking care of sin because his sacrifice completed the work that was necessary. But it's not just Christ that testifies to this. It's also the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also witnesses to us because what the Holy Spirit was given with the, because when the Holy Spirit was given with the establishment of the new covenant, He comes and he causes sin to be taken away from us. Remember that the whole argument, since the same verses that were quoted in these verses were quoted in chapter 8, that the old covenant needed to be replaced with a better covenant. The old covenant couldn't take away sins. A better covenant was needed. A better sacrifice was needed. A better high priest was needed. A better covenant was needed. A covenant that could take away sin. And so the Holy Spirit witnesses that it is a better covenant. Not just Christ is witnessing through the better sacrifice, but the Holy Spirit is witnessing that it is a better sacrifice. 
for after he had said before. So there was in the before he had made the promise that he says, after he says, I will do these things to your heart, I will do these things to your mind, he says, therefore, then I will remove your sins and remember your sins no more. He remembers our sins because he wrote the law on our hearts and on our minds. So then he quotes from Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the new covenant the new covenant that he would establish because of the ineffectiveness of the old covenant. Making a covenant, they made it, he made a covenant, the old covenant, when they were leaving Egypt that did not have the power to give them anything other than physical freedom. It didn't have the power to take away sins. It didn't have the power to have spiritual freedom. Left them in the same slavery, the worst slavery that they were in in Egypt. The slavery in Egypt that was bad was not slavery to Pharaoh, it was slavery to sin. And the old covenant did nothing to deal with that. So this is the new covenant that I will make with them. So God would make a new covenant. The covenant that he sealed with the shedding of the blood of Christ. And the difference between those covenants is that the new covenant would be effective in breaking that slavery to sin not just delivered from physical Egypt. That slavery to sin that the old covenant could never do anything about regardless of how many animals they killed. We'll make a new covenant after those days. And if you look earlier in Jeremiah 31, it talks about how Rachel mourned for her children, how that a woman shall have a mighty man in her womb, which is talking about Christ in the womb of Mary after God had made Judah desolate, after those things came to pass, after those signs of the coming of Christ, then God would enter into a new covenant with Israel. That's what he says, says the Lord. The promise of the new covenant is that sin will be taken away, and the way to have sin taken away is to change the heart of the sinner. Without a change of heart of the sinner, they'll just continue in sin. So when they left Egypt and they made that sacrifice at the bottom of Mount Sinai and they received the law and they said, we'll do all the things in the law. They had no power to do the things in the law because they had no heart to do the things in the law. They just had fear of God. But that's not the new covenant. In the new covenant, I will put my laws. In the new new covenant, God puts the laws into the desires and understanding of man through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the testimony that that the Holy Spirit, that God takes away sins because if you're saved, you see God take away sins in your own life because this is what God did. I will put my laws into their hearts. His laws are written in their hearts, in the hearts of all those who believe. And when they use the word heart, that's not just emotion. It's not just saying, oh, I'll love God's law. It's saying that reason and emotion will come together. That's where God said the heart. The bowels are emotions. The mind is thought. The heart is where thoughts, reason, and emotions come together. And so when he writes it on their heart, they'll see why they should love the law. They won't just love it, but they will see why. They will understand why they should love the law of God. They would desire the things of the law. They would desire to stop sinning. This is how God takes away sin is through the work of the Holy Spirit, writing the laws on your heart that all of a sudden you say with David, oh, how I desire thy law and your sins are taken away. You don't continue to wallow in your sin. His sacrifice takes away sin. And this is the means that he uses through the Holy Spirit to take away sin. As Paul writes in Romans, Romans 7.22, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. That's the picture of having the law written on your heart. If you're saved, you love the law of God in the inward man. You may not obey it the way you should, but the first way to be turned from sin is you start to love the goodness of God's ways rather than your own ways. So God starts to take away sin. He sanctifies us by giving us a heart to desire what he says is good, right, and just, and holy. 
having it written on our heart is not sufficient to stop sinning because we still struggle with the flesh, which is what Paul talks about in Romans 7. But having the law in our hearts is the first step to actually turning from sin, to have our sin taken away from us has a real effect of putting away sin. The law is not just written in our hearts, it's also written in our mind through the Spirit. He opens our understanding so that what is good can be understood and can be reasoned and understood why it is good. The reasoning of the unsaved is very confused. They're not logical because sin makes them twist the truth. This is what the effect of sin is, is that they can't think. They're confused, right? Wisdom from from below is confused. And that's what they have. They have confused wisdom until God writes the law in their mind and then they can actually reason clearly. They can actually reason in in a way that makes sense. With the new heart, the heart of flesh, comes the ability to desire what is good. Having the law written on your mind means that you can actually understand it. You can actually reason it out. You can actually take that case law and apply it to other things. So in their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. It's his work is why we're sanctified. It's his work is why our sins, we turn from our sins. It's because he wrote the law in our hearts and minds. It's not that we take away our own sins. It's that our sin is taken away because of the, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, through the sending of the Holy Spirit, our sins are taken away from us. It's not by our strength. It's not to our credit. It's by the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's by him dying on the cross to destroy the works of the devil. It's by him taking away sin. It's by him having an effectual sacrifice. And then he adds, so in addition to the work that he will do in the new covenant, he then adds the promise of the new covenant. Because he changes our hearts, because he changes our minds, because he takes away our sin, their sins even though we continue to fail and do what we ought not, or we fail to do what we ought to do, he can forgive us because he knows that he's doing this continually. He knows he's in the process of taking away sin. He knows where the end is. He knows that we will be complete and entire. He knows corruption will put on incorruption. He knows that we will be made perfectly and completely holy. And so he can forgive because he forgives knowing the direction that we're going so he can stop holding our sin against us. It's like a parent with a child. Because you expect them to grow up and stop behaving the way they are, you can forgive their rebellion when they're two because you know that someday they're going to get out of it. They're going to grow up. God can forgive us our sins. He can remember our sins no more because he knows he is going to train us like a father. He is going to remove our sins. He is going to make us perfect and complete and without sin so he can remember our sins. He doesn't need to hold our sins against us because he's going to fix the problem because that's what Christ's sacrifice on the cross did. He says we can forgive the sins of our children because we have a future expectation, how much more can he forgive our sins because he has a perfect expectation? He will complete what he started. We expect our two-year-old that's that's rebelling, that's speaking back, that's doing all the things that two-year-olds do, we have an expectation they'll stop. He knows we'll stop. So if we can forgive those sins of our two-year-olds, how much more can he remember our sins and not hold our sins against us anymore because he knows he's going to solve the problem. He knows the sacrifice of Jesus Christ will take away all our sin. And their lawless deeds, unlike sins, which is more, comes from amartia, which means to miss the mark. Lawless deeds are those deeds that they might even be the right thing to do. But to do it without submission to God, that's a lawless deed. It's saying God can't tell me what to do. So you might even do what God wants you to do, but it's a lawless deed if you did it 
out of your own volition rather than doing it out of submission to the lawgiver. If you're not saying, God, tell me what to do, it's a lawless deed. When God writes his law on our hearts and on our minds, we no longer do lawless deeds because our thoughts have been transformed, our hearts, our desires have been transformed so that we know in our inward part what we're to do. We're no longer lawless, so he can forgive all those things where we just pretended like he wasn't there, pretended like he wasn't God, pretended like he had no authority to tell us what to do. He can forgive us all that because now he's written his law in our minds. And we think through his law, so no longer do we do do lawless things. He makes it so that we see that his ways are holy, just, and good and ours by nature or not. And so because he gave us a new heart, because he gave us a new mind, because he is removing all our sin, every bit of it, he is in the process of, rem- of removing our sins and our lawless deeds, he will remember no more. Because he knows he's going to complete the work. He can stop holding our sins against us now doesn't mean that he doesn't chasten us. It doesn't mean that he doesn't scourge us. Like it says in Hebrews 10 or 12, that he scourges us like a father scourges their children. He still scourges us. So it's not like he just goes, oh, those sins don't exist. But he doesn't need to hold those sins against us any more than when you spank your two-year-old, I hope you don't keep holding his sins against him. Because you have an expectation that it'll change. He doesn't hold our sins against us. He doesn't remember our sins because he knows he will change us. Christ's sacrifice is effective in taking away sin. And so he knows that our sins will be taken away. So he knows that he doesn't need to remember them and continue to hold them against us. Not by our labor or we would surely fail. But because of Christ's sacrifice that was done once for all to take away sins. And not just our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Verse 18. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. It starts with now. That word is the Greek word de, which is more like but. It can also be also. It's, it's drawing some contrast with what happened before but it's not about immediacy it's more about creating contrast so now where there is remission of sins if God writes his law on our hearts and on our minds then there is a remission of sin because he doesn't remember the sin we now have freedom and that word that's translated remission more literally means freedom it's more figuratively that it means pardon we have true freedom we're no longer forced to sin we can now understand what sin is we can understand what god's commandments are so we can become lawful and we can become walk in righteousness because god no longer remembers our sin where there's a remission of these which is the remission of the remission of the sins and the lawless deeds. So when he doesn't remember those anymore, we then can have freedom from them. There's no, there's no longer a curse for the sins because God doesn't look at them and remember them anymore because he knows he will sanctify us and he will glorify us and he will make those who put their faith and trust in him completely without sin. So if there's freedom from those, then there's no longer, there's no longer any reason to, to make an offering. There's no longer any reason to, to do anything because there's no debt to God that needs to be paid. It was paid by Christ at the cross. Those who he's going to save, there's no longer any need for an offering for sin because what Christ paid, his offering was sufficient for us not to need any more offering. The sin's paid for. It's been dealt with. 
We are being made complete. So there's no reason to keep paying to make complete because Christ's sacrifice, his offering, was sufficient to pay for it all. To remove not just our sin, but the sin of the whole world. So God says, you don't need to keep making offerings for sin. You don't owe any debt. If the sin's been paid for, if it's been dealt with, which both were accomplished with the sacrifice of Christ, then there's no more offering for sin. It's important to recognize that it's, it's offering for sin. Sin offerings are no longer have any place. It doesn't mean that there isn't a place for Thanksgiving offerings. As we give, if we give money to the church, God loves a cheerful giver. It's, it's an offering that's an offering out of thanks towards God, not an offering to say, I'm going to give money and somehow that will take care of my sins. We don't believe in indulgences. This idea that you can pay money and have your sins wiped out. That's not why you're to give. You're supposed to give because you see what God has done for you and out of thanksgiving, not somehow that this resolves or deals with any of your issues. Because there is no offering for sin. There's no work that's required. There's nothing that you can do to pay for any of your sins because Christ already paid for them all. So any offerings for sin now becomes rejecting Christ. Because if you say that it's by my giving or by my praying or by saying this certain prayer or this doing this work that somehow you're made right with God through that, what you've done is you've rejected the sacrifice of Christ. You've said that his atonement was not sufficient. It was not complete, which is contrary to why he died. He died because he destroyed the works of the devil, works that we can never destroy. And so if we think any offering we do makes us right with God, we're denying the truth and the reality of what his sacrifice was, the enormity of it, that his offering was sufficient to deal with sin, that it's finished. So where there is remission of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. All of Christ's enemies are going to be defeated. They are being defeated. He sat down at the right hand of the Father because it's done. No more offerings needed. He's victorious. He's just collecting the fruits of his victory. Let me give you some applications. The first application is glorify God. Don't limit the effects of Christ's sacrifice. Don't limit it to just people. Don't limit it to what is in the process of, of don't limit it don't limit it in the process of what's what's going on now. Don't look around you and say, Oh, God's God's sacrifice wasn't sufficient to take away sin because I see sin in the world. Through the sacrifice of Christ, the separation with God will be removed. In Revelation 21, John is given a vision of the new heaven and the new earth. And new Jerusalem descends from heaven to earth, and God will then dwell with his people. Revelation 21, 22 through 27. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what Christ's sacrifice was for. Not just to save those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, but to cause a new heaven and a new earth where there is no defilement, where there is nothing that God finds to be abominable. That's what his sacrifice did. That's what is complete. Even if it works out now, that is what is done. Don't make his sacrifice small. His sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to produce a new heavens and a new earth. That's the limit of the atonement. 
Everyone written in the Lamb's book of life is atoned for through Christ. But everything else in in creation was also atoned through. Atoned for through Christ. His atonement was vast. He only saved some, but there's no end of his atonement for everything else that the sin of Adam destroyed. Don't limit the atonement. Don't limit the glory of God in what Christ came to do. He destroyed the works of the devil, and we're seeing them destroyed now. Another application. It's easy to see how the Israelites offered all those sacrifices, but their sins continued. It's easy to see how that wouldn't happen. But remember, the same thing happens today. How many people offer up prayers to idols, whether that idol's called Buddha or the name of a saint or even Jesus Christ, but their sin is not taken away? That's because they're not worshiping the true God. We should recognize still how many futile offerings are offered today paying for a candle so that a mass can be said, as if sins could be taken away through a multitude of words, through repeating the same thing over and over again. The heart of man is to go back to what the Levites did. The heart of Christians who have a new heart, that have the law written on their heart and their mind, they look at that and they go, this is futile, this is worthless. Christ's sacrifice was all that was required. There's no sacrifice that we could do to pay for any sin. So we should just recognize, it's easy to look at the Israelites and say, couldn't they see? Couldn't they understand? But yet how many people today still don't see? They still don't understand. When the trust is in Christ, sins are really and truly taken away. There's no work that takes away any more sins. The person who trusts in Christ has power over his sin because Christ's sacrifice really sanctifies. It really destroys. It really renews your mind. It really renews your heart. It starts to destroy the work of Satan in your life. So stop futile sacrifices. Don't do any sacrifice that you think will somehow make you right with God because there is none that can do it. There is none, no sacrifice that draws you an iota closer to God. Thanksgiving offerings are good to make. We should be thankful towards the living God. We're supposed to thank Him with our lips continually. But don't think there's anything that we can do that deals with sin. Christ finished that already at the cross. Another application, we should remember when the Israelites went through the Red Sea and then Pharaoh and all his army was chasing them and they were destroyed by the waters coming over them. Moses sings in response, Exodus 15, 6 and 7. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. In the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath and consumed them like stubble. That's the picture of Christ's sacrifice. He sat down at the right hand of God and he is destroying all his enemies. It's not happening like in a day like it did with Pharaoh's army. But the armies of enemies against God, they're being destroyed just as, just as completely, just as, as, as without fail like they were when Pharaoh's army chased Israel. That's exactly what Christ is still doing at the right hand of God. He's dashing his enemies to pieces. He's spiritually fulfilling what physically he did at the time of Moses. He's destroying all those who rise up against him in his wrath, and he is consuming them like stubble. Obviously, this is taking much more time to do. But God is also taking people out of Egypt, but not physical Egypt, but spiritual Egypt. And he's doing that slowly, not all at once, but salvation comes one by one to people. And so the whole thing, that whole exodus through the Red Sea and through the destruction of Pharaoh's army, the church age is that thing happening slowly. One after another are delivered from spiritual Egypt and one enemy after another is drowned and destroyed in the Red Sea. But God set forth his wrath and the works of Satan will be destroyed. 
His wrath is being poured out on his enemies, and his people are being delivered from their sin. And he has not yet swallowed them all up, all his enemies up in his wrath. But the promise is still that he will. Second Peter 3, 9 through 10. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will all be burned up. Will be burned up. Because he's waiting for all of spiritual Israel to be rescued from spiritual Egypt. He hasn't caused, not waters like he did at the time of the Red Sea, but fires because the first judgment, like with Noah, the first judgment was water and the second judgment is fire. The picture of, of Moses in the Red Sea is the same. The first time it was with water, the second time it's with fire. The time will come where he will consume them, where the fire will overflow them and all his enemies will be burned up, swallowed up with fervent heat. Another application. The witness of salvation is that you're being sanctified. So many people want other witnesses. Oh, do you have this warm, fuzzy feeling towards God without considering that the love of God is to keep his commandments? Oh, that you called upon the name of the Lord. You prayed in sincerity. You prayed a prayer, which is easy to do with your lips and not with your heart. The witness of salvation is that you're being sanctified because Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Christ came to take away sin. And if you don't see him taking away sin in your own life, do not think that you're saved. He really breaks the power of sin in the lives of those who he saves because we're the first fruits of creation. We're the ones where he starts by removing sin. So if you're saved, he does sanctify you. As Paul said in Romans 8, 29 and 30, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Those who Christ saves, he sanctifies, because that was his purpose in coming, was to transformed the new heavens and the new earth to make a place where there was nothing abominable, where there was nothing that defiles. And he starts it by sanctifying those who believe in him. He starts it by sanctifying those who are the first fruit of creation. Those who Christ sanctifies, he will make them complete. Without any flaw, throughout the future, he will make them complete. He will not lose one seeing the initial sanctification in your life and the ongoing growth in holiness. That's how God witnesses. That's how Christ witnesses to your salvation. You, should, you can see your faith by your works. Another application. Salvation is a change of heart. Through the work of the Spirit, from hating the law of God and seeing it as a handwriting of judgment against you, to seeing it as just, holy, and good. Salvation is a change of heart. And it's a change of heart towards God's commandments. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says that he's the scent of life to those who are living and the scent of death to those who are dying. And he basically says, he goes on in 2 Corinthians 3 and says, basically, I reflect the law. Those who are saved, they love the law. I'm the scent of life to them. Those who aren't saved, I reflect the tablets of stone, which are the condemnation against them, and all they see in me is death. Those who see his law as life are the ones who are saved because they've had their law written on their minds. They've had it written on their hearts. Testimony of whether you're saved or not is, what do you think of the law of God? What do you think when he commands something that's contrary to what you were always taught, what you always thought was the way it was? Do you go, well, God's smarter than I am. His law is good. Or do you go, well, that's a bad idea. Putting witches to death, that's just horrible. We shouldn't do that. The attitude towards the law of God reflects whether you love God or not. 
It reflects whether Christ's sacrifice has taken away your sin. Because when you're saved, in the new covenant, he writes the law in your heart and your mind, and so your attitude towards the law changes. Christ came to take away sin, and so your attitude towards discovering sin has to change. It must change. And the law is a means for us to discover our sin, to better understand our sin. So if you don't love the law of God, if you hate the law of God, it's because you hate the lawgiver. You cannot separate the two. Those who God draws to himself, they love his law, and it is life and not death. And then the last, no, no, have two more applications, sorry. God cannot forgive the sins and remain just unless he not only forgives the sins, but takes away the sins. So often, so much of Christianity is about God forgiving you your sins. But that's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying he takes away the sin. If he doesn't take away the sin, if all he does is forgive the sin, that means he just ignores the sin and he is unjust. And his justice becomes cruelty. It's not just, but he is a just God. To just not remember that a murderer is a murderer without stopping him from being a murderer is inherently unjust, especially to the people who get murdered, those who he goes and murders. God is not like that. For him to be able to forget that the person is a murderer, to, to no longer remember that they're a murderer, requires him to change them so that they don't commit murder. God must remember our sins unless he takes away our sins. Praise God that the effect of the sacrifice of Christ is that our sins are taken away by his changing our hearts, by his opening our understanding. So we turn away from sin, and so he no longer needs to remember that sin, and he remains just. And the last application. Since Christ took away our sins by the offering of himself, since he doesn't remember them anymore, we should not think that there is any offering that we can do that would further what he has already completed. When we make offerings, there are to be thanksgiving offerings. When we serve God, it's not somehow that we get the, the wages of serving God so that he makes us more righteous, that he, that he takes away our sins, that he, he no longer holds our sins against us because we make offerings. There is no offering that is needed. All offerings for sin have ended. Anything that we do now should be out of thanksgiving towards God, out of praise towards Him, out of a desire to, to show Him honor, to show Him gratitude for what He has done. That's what our offering is, whether it's a tithe, an offering, or whether it's, it's serving in the church, or whether it's preaching the gospel in the corner. We should never think any of these things earn us anything towards our salvation, earn us anything towards removing our sin. Do not think that you who are saved in the spirit are cleansed by the works of the flesh. That's not how it works. There's no offering that you can do that will cleanse you. But we should be giving thanksgiving offerings because he is worthy of thanksgiving in prayer. But Christ's sacrifice, if we think anything that we do helps out taking away our sin, it's to deny the effect of Christ's sacrifice. He defeated his enemies. They're just waiting to realize it. And he's sitting in heaven at the right hand of the Father waiting for them to realize it. There's no longer any offering for sin because Christ's offering was necessary since we could not do it ourselves, but it also was sufficient because through that sacrifice, he will destroy the works of Satan, which is what he came to do. Christ succeeds where all those other animals that were sacrificed, every one of them did nothing in terms of dealing with sin. Christ's sacrifice once and for all will take away the sins, not just of the elect, but take away the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for this passage. We thank you for what you teach us through your word. We pray that you give us deeper understanding, give us a greater zeal to 
to praise you, a greater zeal to be thankful towards you, a greater zeal to demonstrate our thankfulness towards you by our works, by, by trusting and believing that you are a good master, that you are a good Lord, that you are a good lawgiver, so that we walk in your ways, not thinking that somehow this will earn us, earn us points, bring us closer to you, but that we owe it to you because you are a God who saved us and redeemed us. Lord, let us, let us be the volunteers that we should be and let us first and foremost turn away from our own sin so we can walk in holiness and righteousness because this is what you died to do. You died to take away sin. May we bring glory and honor to your name by turning from our own sin. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.